Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. I'm here with uh, Dr. Mazurk, physician anesthesiologist, to talk about his article that he wrote and published on LinkedIn, CRNAs, A Short History of Nurse Anesthesia and the Future of Anesthesia Care. Hello, Dr. Mazurk. Great to talk to you. And uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, First, before I get started, I just would uh, like to put in a disclaimer that the content and uh, opinions and any of the answers that I reveal in this interview here are solely my own and not related to any organization, my employer, or hospital or healthcare network for which I work. Um, Well, you know, I kind of wandered into anesthesia. I was born and raised in Fresno, California, and my passion growing up was astronomy, and I was set on the track for a career in astrophysics, and I went to Fresno State. I graduated high school in 1989 there in Fresno. And after about a year and a half of physics study, I wasn't growing bored, but I think what was happening to me was I was trying to understand that some of my colleagues and some of my, some of my classmates in school were going to be my you know, professional peers as I moved forward. <laughs> um, there were, uh, dare I say, too many uh, Star Trek nerdy type conversations at 2 a.m. In, uh, <laughs> in the study hall. And I thought, you know, do I really want to turn something I love, which is a great hobby. I'd built telescopes and done variable stars. Do I want to turn it into a professional career and completely dedicate myself to that type of research? So I had taken a course from Philip Levine in the English department there at Fresno State. And, of course, he was a poet laureate. So here's uh, here's where I wandered. Physics, switched gears to English literature, creative writing towards the end of that. I had had a series of personal experiences and uh, that made me decide on a career in medicine. And what happened was, first, I uh, had kidney surgery when I was 21 years old. And being in the hospital was, uh, you know, an eye-opening experience. And I was always fascinated by the human body. My wife was a unit secretary in a critical care unit. And coincidentally, I applied for and accepted a job as a living skills instructor with uh, severely developmentally disabled adults at a group home there in Clovis, California. It was that experience for three years while I was getting my English degree that made me decide to become a physician. So uh, I applied to medical school after graduating with my English degree. I had to go back and do two years of uh, post-baccalaureate, you know, pre-medical sciences courses like organic chem and biochem and cell biology, et cetera. And applied to med school in 1996, applied to 35 schools, and got my dream shot. Of course, out of those 35 schools, what's interesting, I had 29 rejection letters. So I had six interviews. I got into UC Davis, Irvine, and then UCSF late in the summer of 97. And, you know, the kind of the kernels of anesthesia had had kind of been sown a little bit in me just based on some of what my wife had told me about critically ill patients. And I thought, well, this kind of seems like an interesting career path. 
Well, not not one to not take advantage of opportunities. My first year of med school, I met one of my uh, most important mentors, Dr. C. Spencer Yost, who is at UCSF. I believe he's he's one of the uh, uh, vice chairs now. He's a critical care trained physician as well. I worked in his lab on volatile anesthetic mechanisms of action with tandem poor potassium channels uh, after my first year of uh, medical school uh, with the Genentech Research Fellowship. And I carried on that research for the next three years, and we published a couple of really interesting articles, uh, one in anesthesiology, one in the Journal of Biological and Cell, uh, sorry, <laughs> one in the uh, uh, Journal of Biological Chemistry, and then applied to, uh, you know, anesthesia residencies, decided to stay at UCSF. It was a great experience. And uh, here I am today. Love my job. So That's awesome. That's quite the roundabout way from astronomy to anesthesia. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. When, you know, when I was interviewing for some of my residency program positions, uh, I, I vividly recall one of the professors looking up and down my resume, because I also did agrochemical research in one of those summers in college for Dali Lanko uh, on pesticides and herbicides and this kind of thing. And he says, uh, you know, when I look at your resume, it doesn't look like you really know what you want to do with your life. I said, well, you can kind of look at it that way, or you can look at it as, you know, I'm just a, just a kid who's taken advantage of nearly every opportunity that's been thrown out in front because I'm super curious and I like to learn. And, you know, good answer, I guess. So, yeah, that works. Yep. <laughs> and so what ended up, uh, you know, developing your interest in anesthesia history? And based on this article, I'm sure it's not the first time you've written and read about it. Uh, what, what ended up running you down that road? Well, you know, what's interesting is when, when I was an English major, uh, one of my professors, uh, my Shakespeare professor, um, he was, uh, he had a Bachelor of Science in Geology. He had a Juris Doctorate, and he was a practicing lawyer in Michigan. Hated it. Went back and got a PhD in English. So he was a Renaissance man. So when I was taking some of my English courses, it became glaringly apparent to me that in order to understand the context for which a piece was written, you had to understand the political, economic, and social environment of the life and times of that individual living at that time period writing that particular piece. I mean, it's, uh, so with anesthesia, of course, there have been, you know, numerous advances throughout the last century. And I'm always curious, why are we doing it this way today? And where were we yesterday? And where would we like to be tomorrow? So, of course, just being curious, I start digging around in the dirt and you find out all kinds of interesting things. And, uh, you know, this article was, was one of them. I've also done a couple of other uh, history articles and presentations on Chauncey Leak and divinyl oxide. And I did another one on, of course, Sir William McEwen and the history of intubation. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. Anesthesia's got a really interesting history, particularly how we got to places like blocks and intubation and all the foibles that happened in the way to them. That's for sure. Absolutely. And so in the article, there was one particular place where you mentioned uh, talking about when uh, nurses and physicians recognized the need to create formal societies, and that they happened within a five-year period, which you mentioned was not a coincidence, and that, that does seem to ring true. And what, do you, what were you referring to that was the significance of that quick within the two of creating a formal society? 
Well, you know, if that was, of course, in the early 30s. And, you know, uh, Ralph Waters had, of course, you know, created the first professional MD, you know, formal residency program there in Madison in 1927. And he was, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was recruited from Kansas. And he was originally trained as an obstetrician generalist physician, but had an intense interest in anesthesia and had done some, some of his own research on it. Now, of course, dovetailing with this whole time period, of course, you know, you had the CRNAs forming their own formal training programs. And I believe I mentioned in the article, Alice McGee on the West Coast in Portland, forming one of the first schools in 1909. Uh, during that time period, though, from 1910 to 1920, there were numerous lawsuits um, against the CRNAs having an independent type of practice. In other words, they had to be supervised and that sort of thing, or you know, they were basically told you're practicing medicine, you can't do it, so you have to stop. Now, of course, this was also at the same time period that the American medical system was recognizing that during the 19th century, I mean, you know, in the 1860s, to become a physician, all you had to do was pay somebody in a private <laughs> school, throw a certificate on the wall, and, you know, hand out the mercury, so to speak. In other words, it, it really was more witchcraft than it was medicine towards towards the late 19th century, especially. But getting back to that question on, on the organization, the, the, the organization uh, and the organization of medicine in general, too, was taking place. It wasn't just an anesthesia. You had other medical societies also forming professional organizations. Um, you know, the AMA, of course, was becoming more powerful. I just don't, I don't think it's a coincidence because, too, in 1927, when you had that formal residency program created by, by Ralph Waters, there was then an urgency for, um, you know, other, other programs to kind of consolidate. In other words, it was just kind of a general movement, so to speak, to, to create a, a political organization and an academic, you know, organization and setting for, you know, both arms of, you know, anesthetists and anesthesiologists to, uh, to move forward. Right. Was it, it was just, uh, just before all this that the Flexner report came out and that's what really kind of revolutionized medicine, I think. Right. Oh yeah. The, well, the Flexner report was, was immense. It really was. I mean, we, you know, especially in the late 19th century, if you think about it, you had homeopaths, um, you had, uh, you know, allopathic, you know, MDs, uh, practicing medicine, and you know there was a lot going on, but the quality—the quality—I mean, we talked about quality of care here. In, you know, 2019, the quality of care in the late 19th century. Of course, first of all, we didn't have that much knowledge, but frankly, it, you know, it was some of it was dangerous. You know, the homeopaths—I mean, early in the 19th century, even around the turn of the American Revolution, physicians were bloodletting, applying leeches, putting mercury in you know, arsenic salves on people, things like that. So, you know, we've obviously come a long, long way in the last 200 years, just in the practice of medicine. So. Absolutely. And do you think, do you think Waters, Dr. Waters and McGee were aware of each other during that period of time? Or do you think that was sort of happening in isolation? Well, McGee's program was in 09 and uh, Waters really developed an interest there in the late teens, early 20s, if I'm not mistaken, and in 27 formed this program. So he's about two decades after her. And, mm -hmm. you know, the I think by at that point in time, by the time Ralph Waters had decided to, you know, focus on creating a formal academic department, um, 
I think Alice McGee almost would have sort of been lost in the noise. There are a lot of schools. So uh, unless they had perfect, you know, run into each other, I doubt seriously that, that they were even aware of each other's existence. Now, that I don't think that's the case necessarily with McGaw, who was down here in, uh, in Rochester at, at the Mayo with the Mayo brothers. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was aware of, of what she had accomplished. I mean, it's just, it's impossible not to, she had published in the Lancet. Um, you know, she was, she was kind of famous within the Mayo system and you, you can't, you can't ignore that kind of a history or, or be, I, you just can't be ignorant of it. Yeah. It seems like it'd be hard not to be aware of, of her in particular based upon, right. you know, the tens of that 10,000 plus anesthetics performed without a single death, which seems almost near impossible based upon what they were using. But, you know, with that kind of a number, people be aware and she published that. Well, yeah, I think the number actually was 14,000. I mean, but still, oh, 14. if you, but 14,000 anesthetics without a death back then with no monitoring, uh, you know, I mean, you, you're talking about, you're talking about a pretty, a pretty remarkable skill set, and, and, uh, you know, just, physiologically aware and knowing what's going on. I mean, it, it's an incredible, it's actually an incredible feat if you think about it. Yeah. Extraordinarily so, vigilant. Yes, absolutely. For sure. And one of the things you mentioned in your article is you had that super cool 1903 certificate of anesthesia, probably one of the first ones ever given uh, from yes. Scotland to a guy named Dr. Broughton Head. You still have it? I still have it. Yes, that I do. Awesome. Yeah, no, I still do. It's, I've got it kind of in a in a cubby hole where it doesn't get much sunlight, but it's still framed up on, you know, I moved it up from Tucson, of course. But, you know, it, it, I got that certificate. Now, there's this little history behind that. I I was awarded that by uh, Merlin Larson, who was one of my mentors when I was, you know, exploring some of the topics in, in anesthesia history. And he presented that to me. Uh, golly, I forget when. I don't think it was... Uh, during residency, it may have been, I know when it was, yes, it was in 2004 and it was at the anesthesia, American, the anesthesia history association meeting in Las Vegas. He presented it to me. So yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, his, Sir William McEwen, again, you know, he was a, you know, pioneer in his uh, over across the shores when he was, you know, attempting to intubate patients. And of course there were no ventilators, but, you know, he had a couple of very bad outcomes that probably had nothing to do with what he was doing and more to do with how sick the patient was, but he just stopped, stopped doing it, but he was the first to do it. And so now in your, in your career and your history, what has been your experience generally with uh, CRNAs? Uh, well, generally I have to say, I mean, I, I, I view this, I view the CRNAs as my colleagues and my partners in the operating room. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not one to get hung up on a whole lot of titles. You know, I, I worked with CRNAs when I was a resident there at UCSF and we had more CRNAs there at San Francisco general. Um, I think we had about six or seven. We had one or two at Mount Zion and there were only one or two at UCSF at the time. Of course, that number is completely off now. It's, I think there are 60 or 70, if not more now in the program there at UCSF, but you know, we were doing level one trauma at San Francisco general. And, you know, one of these things, of course, when you're sitting there eating lunch and you all have the pagers, it really doesn't matter who's, who's going down as your wingman during some of these trauma activations. And, you know, especially as an R1, 
when you don't really know that much, when you're a CA1, pardon me, uh, you really, you're not very finessed and you just don't have enough experience. I mean, one of the few of the CRNAs I worked with, you know, they'd been doing it for 20, 25 years. And, and of course they have, they have a, tons to teach a first year anesthesia resident, you know, I mean, you're basically fresh and green. Right. And so, you know, I worked alongside them. We broke them, they broke us. And, you know, we kind of did a little shift thing there at, at the county, as we love to affectionately call it. And, you know, we never really, we never really thought of anything uh, political or uh, skill set wise or anything else. It's just, hey, we're here, we're taking care of patients and we're here to do a good job and, and learn from each other. Do you think that at that time and more, or maybe more specifically in those facilities, that things were just less politically charged than they are today? Or was that very unique to that place? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I, and I, and I have to speak from the only, the only thing I can remember from that time period was just making sure I could get enough sleep and I could eat and, <laughs> and, re- you know, that kind of thing and learn. Right. Because you, you know how it is in medicine, your training programs, med- medical school and, CRNA school was like drinking from a fire hydrant, so to speak. And then when you're in training, your clinical training, you're working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week. And honestly, you're just, you're wanting to see your, uh, see your pillow. So I really wasn't aware of, I, I, you know, I wasn't sensitive to it, wasn't aware of it, never even really gave it much thought, to be honest with you at that time period. Well, what was, what was kind of interesting, you know, Dr. Miller, you know, he was our chairman and of course everyone knows who he is. when he was assigned to the OR, he would often have a CRNA cover his room, which, you know, I was like, okay, if Dr. Miller can, you know, have a CRNA cover his room, I mean, that, you know, actions speak louder than words, in my opinion. And he was excellent. You know, we, I learned, we learned a, a ton from him. Um, and, uh, you know, it's because Dr. Miller was pretty busy. He only was, I think he was assigned to a room once every couple of weeks, you know. Right. And you mentioned in your article at one point uh, that there's always been conflict basically between our, I think more specifically between our organizations than individuals. And uh, the quote was with regard to scope of practice, independence, education, and organization. And why, why do you generally think that there's been that kind of conflict or difficulty between organizations or maybe even individual providers through that time period? Well, you know, it's, in retrospect, and this is something I hadn't really thought of when I wrote the article, but I had one of those aha moments, um, you know, when, when McGee formed the first school in 1909, this was, you know, right at the height of the women's suffrage movement. And if if you think about it, most of the nurse anesthetists at that time period, I mean, there were, I, I, I have yet to find one, one male nurse anesthetist from that era. Uh, conversely, how many females were also physicians? So not, I, I don't want to, you know, the thing is what was happening too was you've got the, the nurse anesthetist women organizing politically to learn, you know, to, to gain the right to vote. And we also now have these nurses organizing politically and academically to you know, formally train each other on performing anesthesia. So, you know, of course, women's suffrage passed in 1920. So this time period in this era, there was a lot of conflict, not just between, you know, I'm not going to, you know, 
anesthesiologists or you know CRNAs, but there was conflict just in the political arena over over women's rights. So when Ralph Waters, of course, formed his first anesthesia residency program, the water babies were all men. I mean, no one's no one can deny that. It's just a simple fact. So, you know, I don't. In the modern era, it's very difficult to talk about these sensitive subjects without sounding sexist or, you know, that kind of thing, which I certainly don't want to. But again, I think that's why people need to appreciate that where you have, where, where we were in that era is just the way things were at that time period. Here we are, you know, a hundred years later and things have obviously changed dramatically. But I think that some of the some of the dynamic was fueled a little bit around that. So when Ralph Waters formed the first program, it was very academically minded. He wanted MDs and he wanted, he wanted to basically, you know, bring back the entire practice of anesthesia into, into a formal medical practice. And of course, up to that time period, even before the nurse anesthetist, medical students were doing anesthesia and, you know, the, the training wasn't really very formal. That really is an interesting perspective. I think you're right. I think there's definitely true insight there into what, I mean, you know, colloquial people would term that as gender wars at a time when, you know, when women were, were trying to, to reach for equality and men were still seeing them as less than equal. If you were doing what would be considered a, a man's job, quote unquote, that would be a source of contention. You know, that'd be a reason right there. Yeah, that makes total sense. No, absolutely. And, you know, the thing you can't, you, it's absolutely, it's foolishness to try to deny a statement like that, too, because, and that's why I said, it's like, well, what's, what was really, and so, the, you know, the thing is, the political organizations, of course, the AANA, which wasn't then that, that, but, and the ASA, of course, formed around that time, just after that time period. It came after the heels. I mean, it, they were formed less than two decades after the suffrage, you know, movement. So, You've got an organization of predominantly women and an organization of predominantly men. And things are still hot. Doing the same thing. And things are still hot. So when you have, you know, it's, it's one of the things, you know, I've learned in a lot of my management courses, my master's program, you know, culture is an exceptionally difficult thing to change. It really truly is. And, and, and a, a company culture, for example, when you walk into a hospital, I'm sure you've had this. You walk into a hospital that has a certain feel. The people in the C-suite can change. The guy in the lab can change. But you still walk through there and it has a certain feel. That feel is the culture of the place. So I think that, you know, some of the some of the discontent or some of the, I should say, disharmony, if you will, kind of was probably laid down under that fabric more than anything else. So I... I don't because it just doesn't make any sense to me otherwise. That really makes total sense. I'd never thought of it that way before, but it's totally true. One of the things you mentioned is you had supported our efforts, and at that time I was uh, involved in the uh, Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthetists to push through a bill um, related to removing 
liability from surgeons. And uh, we had a larger bill at that time that didn't pass. And you had supported us. And by, on behalf of all the Arizona CRNAs, I'd like to say thank you for that. No, oh, you're welcome. Luckily, we passed what we really wanted to the next year, which effectively we put in statute that a uh, surgeon couldn't be liable for the actions, of ac- actions, negligence, or malpractice of a CRNA that they worked with. Uh, actually, it says a physician, so bit, really anybody. And that, that was, we wanted to take responsibility for our own actions. Right. Effectively. You know, if, if you're doing it, you should take responsibility for it. That's how I was raised. Right. What spurred you to want to support us? Uh, just my experience working with CRNAs, uh, you know, to be honest. First of all, there's a critical shortage of anesthesia care in rural areas in the country. Um, you know, you, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find an MD or three or four MDs, you know, uh, willing to practice in some of the smaller communities. The other thing, too, is, you know, it's, it's my experience so far working with CRNAs, you know, as my professional colleagues has been, um, it's been collaborative. And again, I think I said this at the start of the, uh, you know, at the start of the interview, we're doing the same job and we're doing it for the same reasons. And we're, we're both from both sides of the spectrum, very, very highly trained. And, you know, we're, we're given, we're given a lot of credentials and we're given a lot of time to develop our skill set, which is, you know, earned. And I think that too, if, if we deny, if we deny someone the privilege to, to basically practice without that supervision from a surgeon, then you're going to be denying care to patients, especially. And it just doesn't make sense. And I think I kind of pointed to this in the article. I, I really, I can't think of a surgeon and I've never met a surgeon other than, you know, maybe a cardiothoracic surgeon who would feel comfortable doing some, I, I just can't, I can't think of a surgeon today with the specialties the way they are, who would feel comfortable, you know, breaking scrub, running across the drapes and looking at what we do because it's incredibly complex. You know, we're not doing open drop either. You know? Yeah. It's, it's not simple. And I, you know, surgeons in general get between two weeks and maybe four weeks of an anesthesia rotation, right. which may or may not be involved them actually doing a lot of anesthesia. And so their perspective is not the same as, as ours. We're looking at a bigger picture. They're looking at putting the tube between the cords most of the time. It's a different focus. You know, that's a skill everything else is thinking. There's, you know, let's be clear. There's a big difference between, you know, doing anesthesia and intubating someone. I mean, that's exactly, you know, I mean, the pulmonologists do it, the ER docs do it now, but they, can they run, can they, can they actually, you know, do a pre-anesthetic plan, perform the anesthetic, have a packy discharge plan, wake somebody up, know when to give narcs, that kind of thing. I mean, that takes years to develop. And the, the history of course of, nurses being supervised again goes back to the early you know 20th century and the late 19th century where the surgeon of course is considered more or less the captain of the ship so to speak and of course if you have nurses in there it's very easy to give them orders on what to do and but with open drop ether i mean we're not talking about you know we're not even starting ivs on these patients i mean it's a whole if we were to go back in time 120 years and see how anesthesia was administered, I think all of us would, would you know, be kind of an interesting thing to see, almost scary if you ask me. Uh, but today, with the complex ventilators, all the bells and whistles, a variety of drugs, I mean, it's just a, and now we're doing opioid-free anesthesia. Uh, 
and you know we're running multiple drips for some of these ERAS cases when you walk across and you look behind the blue drape at what we're doing there's a lot going on and I just don't think that I just don't think it's fair to a surgeon to expect them to understand what we do and that's another reason why I was like wait a second here you can't say that the surgeon knows as much as the CRNA they don't it's just it's it just doesn't make sense yeah I as a couple of my friends from Alabama would say, that dog don't hunt. <laughs> yeah, right. I, and one of the things you mentioned in the article that I thought was really a great idea was the idea of having a joint sort of conference or or ASAANA meeting to actually sit down and have an honest discussion about the future of anesthesia, our concerns, getting them together. And I know in the past, the, the leadership of the ASA and the ANA have sat together. I know they do currently uh, have meetings. But as far as a, a, a real meeting with members to get together and sit and talk and mix, because, you know, I think... I think that things get much easier when you sit in front of someone and have a conversation. You know, you, you've personalized them then, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, last fall, I attended the Minnesota, Minnesota Association of Nurse Anesthetists Conference there in the cities. And, you know, I was one of what I think I may have only actually been one of the only MD anesthesiologists there. But there was a wonderful conference and event. I sat in on some of the lectures. I, you know, the topics are the same. I mean, we're talking about people in physiology here that is common between us. I mean, there, and there really is common ground. I mean, there are issues, concerns, and topics that are very relevant to, to both organizations and both types of practitioners. And I think if we were to strike, you know, some ground on common ground, so to speak, and, and kind of meet halfway on some of these topics, the shortage of anesthesiologists and CRNAs is one of them. You know, what's what's the long-term solution for that? Or the low the low pay, the low reimbursement by, um, you know, Medicare for anesthesiology. Well, and that's that that affects both organizations as well. Uh, and uh, the recertification thing is affecting the practitioners in both specialties as well, with the ABA and the, I, I believe now the. Uh, Nurses are also having to recertify as well. Is that is that correct? Yeah, with an exam, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Just that's very. We have a MOCA minute thing now for the ABA, which is different than this old tenure exam. But you know, the principles of it are the same. So we're both, you know, both organizations. I'm not saying they're reinventing the wheel, but we have some common ground to come together on. And I think that would be kind of a bridge for us to, to forge better partnerships and in some settings. I mean, our practice setting is very, very unique up here in Northern Minnesota. I still do my own cases. I don't supervise. I can medically direct. I do the pre-ops. I can do, we do the blocks. We prepare them. The CRNAs can do pre-ops and then do their own cases. And, you know, it's just a, we all help each other out. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great environment. And I have the students from <clears throat> two of the nurse anesthesia programs here in the upper Midwest who come in and we teach a lot of regional anesthesia. So, you know, that's a technical skill. And, you know, in the words of Mark Rosen, who was our residency program director, he said, you want to teach everyone around you as much as you can. doesn't matter what their title is. If it's a technical skill, they can learn it. You don't need an MD. You don't need an RN. Like masking, you know, a patient, for instance. You don't need an MD. You need to practice, you know, doing that doing the doing the bag and the mask so to speak absolutely raise all the people up around you yep, to the, raise them the up. highest possible and 
that's all better for patients at the end of the day. Yeah, at the end of the day, and that's what Mark Rosen would even say. If you're going to teach somebody how to save someone's life and you've, you've done your job, it's a good philosophy to have. And I think you're right. I think we have much more in common in, in, in our, so even our association level than we, than we don't. And it's, a, it's unfortunate that there's so much political angst because I think that could be resolved with exactly the kind of idea that you have of, of a meeting where people all come together that are open, you know, open to have a discussion about it. Right. No, no, I was just thinking, I mean, some, you know, it, what may eventually happen too is, I mean, rather than have a formal conference from the societies, I mean, some CRNAs from state groups might just band together with some other uh, MD societies from other states and have smaller conferences as kind of an organic start to the whole process. And one of the things I uh, that's going on recently, you, you probably know about, is um, CMS has proposed that CRNA should be able to do the pre-anesthetic evaluation at ambulatory surgery centers, which effectively is what happens anyway. Right. Um, but and that that would be a change from currently, you know, uh, a surgeon, if it's just CRNAs with surgeons, would have to at least sign off in their surgeon's record that they that they agree with the anesthesia evaluation in the plan. And, you know, organizations are, are against that in general. And uh, the organizations, of course, you know, the ASA, as well as the American College of Surgeons even came out against that, which is interesting. What is your idea? What What do you think about that? I mean, you, you're a pretty apolitical individual, and so when I when I look at this, what I see is, you know, there isn't a surgeon or a podiatrist or a dentist who knows as much about the anesthetic assessment as I do. That's my perspective, and I don't know any that I work with of the twenty or so, you know, uh, providers that would ever suggest that they did. You know, they don't question us when we decide to cancel a case because it's unsafe. So, why would that be? Why would they want to be against that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I'm not familiar with with the resistance. You know, why there would be some resistance. I'll I'll be blunt though. I mean, having a podiatrist or a dentist, if if you want to say that they're more capable than a CRNA of of making an anesthetic evaluation, I I'm kind of baffled. Honestly, it doesn't even make any sense at all to me. It just doesn't. Not even on any in any way, shape, or form. That's not really a political statement so much as your training absolutely doesn't give you the experience or the knowledge to to make that assessment. You know, for example, let's just say you were going to do a mini-dose spinal on someone with critical AS in a surgery center. Of course, you, you know, you wouldn't do it. But, you know, these, these are the kinds of questions on all boards that we get asked you get asked as a as an you know as a CRNA, and I get asked on boards. You're going to do a spinal for a hip on someone with critical AS. No, I'm not going to do a spinal, and I can guarantee you a dentist and podiatrist would look at me and say, "Why not?" And they would, that, "Why?" Well, there's a massive sympathectomy there. Do you know about you know afterload, preload? I mean, do you know the do you know the real physiological impacts of of what we're doing? And you know, unless you're actually doing that day in and day out the way we do it, because I mean, if you think about it, we're not really anesthesiologists, we're not anesthetists, we're physiologists is what we are. We are we are applied or, you know, applied physiologists. That's what we do. We alter physiology through the drugs we administer. And unless you're doing that on a day-in, day-out basis and you're familiar with all the effects, you just can't say that you're going to know what's going to happen, you know? Exactly. You know, I think of things like pulmonary hypertension sure. and AS. Those are 
prime examples. You know, I understand what an RVSP is. I understand how to calculate the RVSP. I know what PA pressures are. I know when it's going to be too dangerous to do in a particular place. And where I live at 6,200 feet above sea level, part of the anesthetic assessment may be to, to transfer this case to a lower sea level just to be safer. Oh, absolutely. Because they'll do better. Right. Yeah. But, you know, e- even some of our surgeons would look at that and go, well, I don't get it. Why? Because the last time they looked at pulmonary hypertension was probably medical school. Correct. You know, that's not their focus unless there may be a cardiothoracic surgeon right. or, you know, a cardiovascular surgeon, one of those two. No, but I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to pick on specialties, but you know, some of our surgical subspecialists are ENTs, urologists, orthopedic surgeons, plastic surgeons, that kind of thing. I mean, they're not, they're, they're not nearly as, uh, you know, in tune with that kind of thing as we are. And, uh, and, and I completely agree, which is why I'm saying a dentist. I mean, really, I, I, I'm just kind of lost. I'm lost. I'm not saying that, you know, they're, they're good at doing, you know, a, a dental history and physical. So, yeah, I agree. It's an odd thing. I mean, I think, you know, I think when you, when you sum it up, ultimately the answer is money. What was the question? And that's, <laughs> that's kind of what it comes down to. And so you get into these kind of battles for silly, silly reasons when, when ultimately the goal is to take care of patients and you should have the person who is most trained at the job in the, in the position they're in, take care of that par- portion that they're most educated in really. I mean, I think that's a no brainer for just about anyone looking at that from the outside. The other thing I want to ask you about is there's, there's a movement in the CRNA community uh, and the ANA is um, recognized. This as a descriptor uh, utilizing the term nurse anesthesiologist. And I think the reason that that's been pushed has been related to sort of anesthesiologist assistance utilizing the term anesthetist. So, you know, in, in the U.S., anesthetist has always been CRNA. Anesthesiologist was developed and, and created to be a physician anesthesiologist, whereas, of course, in, in the U.K. and Australia, this is exactly uh, the opposite, all physician and all anesthetists. But this has been sort of a movement to separate CRNAs as sort of an independent provider from an AA as a dependent provider because there's been a movement to lump them all in together, basically. What, what is your take on that kind of thing? Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of it, but you know, now that most of the CRNA programs are going to a doctoral program, now we're going to have DNPs. You know, in fact, I actually have, you know, one of my colleagues here, um, you know, she has her doctorate in nursing practice and for all intents and purposes, there's no rhyme or reason why she can't, you know, introduce herself as Dr. XYZ, right? Now, she doesn't do that because in her world, she doesn't want to misrepresent herself as an allopathic physician, because I think that's what, you know, patients expect. If you walk up and you say you're Dr. X, they're assuming you've gone to medical school. You know, as far, as far as I'm concerned, the whole title thing, it's just, I, I, I don't get it. And I get it in some levels. I mean, it's just one of these ways where we have to kind of distinguish ourselves on one front to differentiate our training. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the whole AA thing, that's another political, <laughs> that's another political arena right now. I mean, if, if you think, if you think about it, it's another layer of complexity, you know, that that's kind of been introduced and, uh, right now it remains to be seen what, how all of this is going to unfold. Yeah, that's for sure. It's complicated. And, you know, we're in a time when there's economic pressure on healthcare, so there's going to be more and more. Um, looking for more and more alternative models in order to to meet these needs effectively. 
Well, it's similar to what's happening in a lot of primary care practices and even hospitalist practices. They have NPs and they have PAs. You know, they basically have the three-layered system and the same same. I mean, in, in my opinion, it's the same kind of thing happening now with anesthesia, AAs, CRNAs, MDs. You know, the thing is, though, what's, what's going to happen, and I've, I've written this on some other articles on LinkedIn, I think that, you know, the role, the role of the anesthesiologist in, in, in anesthesia care, it's extending way beyond the operating room anymore. You know, there's Loma Linda, I believe, now has a nurse uh, uh, anesthesiology hospitalist program where the anesthesiologists basically are responsible for the entire perioperative care period. And the surgeon has been, you know, I'm not going to say relegated to a technology, you know, a technician, but the anesthesiologist manages the pain, et cetera. And the surgeon rounds as a consultant, not as the primary caregiver and their length of stay decreased, you know, so that's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it, it, we're seeing a lot of different remarkable things happen in medicine right now. I think that the most important thing is for us not to get hung up on on who's got what title and, and that kind of thing and more realize that we're all bringing different perspectives to the table, a different training experience to the table, but all for one common goal, which is to really, you know, take great care of people and do it in a lot, you know, do it with less money. Uh, we have to be focused on that as well. You know, we have to be more economically minded. Yeah, I agree. Totally. So uh, this has been a great interview. You've been great. And uh, what I'd, the last thing I'd like to, to say is, uh, what would you like to say to CRNAs, physician anesthesiologists who may be listening to the podcast? What message would you like to leave with them? Well, you know what? It's, it sounds really cliche, uh, but, you know, we're kind of all, of the, we're all in this together. And we're all on the same team at the end of the day. Uh, you know, we've worked alongside each other for for decades taking care of patients and saving lives and that's what we're going to continue to do and you know I'm, I'm passionate about my job i absolutely love anesthesia i love my practice and i love working with my md colleagues crna colleagues my surgical colleagues the nurses on the floor anyone who's in that in that common goal and i think uh i think the, the number one thing is you know and I, I say this especially at this time in medicine don't forget why we're doing what we're doing it's a calling you know it's a professional calling to, to do what we do. It's also a, a, a privilege to be able to do what we do. Not everyone has the, has the uh, capability to, to take care of people the way we do. Absolutely. Matt, you have been a total breath of fresh air. I intentionally, and when I set up this podcast, I wanted to talk to not just CRNAs, but physicians and uh, get perspectives that were, that were, you know, kind of apolitical and just interested in exactly what you just said. We're all in it together. We're all trying to do our best for patients. You know, you got into it because you wanted to take care of patients ultimately. And so that's the goal, right? Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Amazing article that you wrote. Uh, I think everyone in anesthesia, no matter what their title, appreciates people like you. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 